integration is two ways, Neil. People integrating into the UK yeah. values. That's one part of the integration. The other part, which is absolutely critical, is that the host community also needs to adapt to the people who are coming and celebrate that diversity. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. Where are you from? No, where are you really from? No, 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 whereabouts are you actually from? That's been a big debate and contentious talking point in the media in the last week or so. Lady Hussey, member of staff at Buckingham Palace, resigned after asking charity boss Ngozi Fulani, where are you from, and persisted to do it and made her very uncomfortable. So this week we ask, is it okay to ask that question? What point does curiosity drip into potentially racist tropes? And immigration, asylum, huge issues in the media. So there's nobody better to talk to about this than Fuad Mohammed, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director to the Board at Ashley Community Housing, which he founded in 2008. They're not just a housing organisation, they support immigrants and refugees, settle into the environment. Enjoy. Hi, Fuad. How you doing? Hi, Neil. How are you, mate? I'm very well. We're um, we've both had to deal with our children's situation, haven't we? We're recording this literally just after school picking up time. You, you've hidden yours in your house somewhere, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've I've, I've got two girls, uh, um, and you know, trying to do this whilst they are playing in the background. So it's uh, <laughs> they are really blessing. Well, thank you um, for for giving up your time, and uh, I've shipped off my three to my sister's house. Um, so all hopefully we'll hear in the background is my cat uh, meowing. You are the chief executive officer and executive director of the board at Ashley Community Housing. Your website says it's a social enterprise comprised of diverse group of strategists and researchers led by lived experience. You provide supported accommodation, tailored integration services that not only help individuals but also disrupt the systems that entrenched inequalities in our society. Uh, are you the founder, Fuad, is that right? Did you find this organisation yourself? That's absolutely correct. And why did you decide to do this? Uh, to understand that, I have to take you back, God, 23 years ago when I came to this country. I left Somalia uh, because there were some challenges and I came to this country as a refugee so when I came to UK, I, I was very much taken back by the generosity of, of, of the people I have met. But also uh, in that process, th- there have been some challenges. And it was those days that I had the seed in my mind that I wanted to start an organization that can work with new arrival communities to help them uh, resettle and integrate into UK. So it, it goes back to... Um, a dream I had basically when I came to UK. And you would have been one of the first wave. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the situation in Somalia, I think in the late 80s was the first wave of people to come from Somalia following the civil war. Would you have been around that time that you came to the UK then? The first wave, you're quite right, was late 80s, but it, it, it went on um, for almost 10 years. 
until um, you know early 2000s when there was some sort of transitional government put in place in the country. Mm. So um, I have actually stayed in neighboring countries and in Somalia when the conflict is started to the point where I have left Somalia in 1997 and then came to UK uh, 1998. So you're quite right, there was waves of people that came. For example, now in Ukraine, the first wave have come when the conflict have started and people are still coming as we speak, uh, Neil. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I wasn't the first wave, but I came seven, eight years after the conflict had started. But you established Ashley Hazen, which I guess was a small organisation in 2008. That was around inner city, eastern Lawrence Hill area originally. You're absolutely right. It was in St. Paul's. Um, St. Paul's, sorry. I, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, the first property I, I got, the, the, there was a chap that was managing, I think, 10 bedroom hostel to work with refugees and uh, he had difficulties in you know making sure he gets the right sustainable funding and, and and he just gave up and it was at that point i said to myself this is it you know this is the opportunity to do what i wanted to do always mm. would you believe it Neil? at the time i was working with an engineering consulting firm so uh, as you would imagine it was almost 10 12 hours a day and after I finished my long working hours, I would come to the so-called hostel 10-bedroom property where there were 10 homeless refugees. Yeah. And it started and, and I stayed patient like that for almost two years, two years and a half before then I decided to quit my professional engineering job. Oh, wow. So you had no experience really of, of this type of stuff until you changed careers? The most important experience I had was my lived experience. Your lived I went experience, through the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I went through the system. I have seen. You were, you were a refugee yourself? Correct. Yeah. So uh, I have seen what works, what could work better. But you're quite right in terms of understanding and, and, and experience in working in the sector, I, I haven't had. And yeah, it was very new to me. What you've done has clearly worked and clearly been really successful. You've now grown to not just in Bristol, you've got offices in Birmingham. Wolverhampton, Coventry, and you've created a huge influence and imprint in Bristol. And it's one of the most respected organisations that do stuff like you do. Has it more often changed a bit over the years? How much of it is housing? How much of it is to do more with supporting and settling refugees and migrants and where that sort of balance sits? I guess you can never really divorce the two. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for saying um, the respect that we enjoy, uh, certainly in Bristol and, and, and the rest of the country. Uh, so ACH have grown to uh, from Bristol to West Midlands. We have offices in Bristol, Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Coventry. Uh, we have about uh, 100 staff catering for, at any one time, um, 800 homeless people. And we impact about 3,000 people a year. So we're quite significant from that humble beginning that we had in mm. 2008. How does that feel for you, growing an organisation? As you said, it's like a dream in your mind to what it's become today. There must be a strong sense of achievement. To be honest, I, I never had a proper plan where I, I wanted this to be big. My ambition always has been to have impact on the people that arrive here and also the systems that work with the people that arrive here. In that process, it took me where we are today. And, and I have to really say, Neil, it is not just for the story this Another 100 people who are absolutely the most amazing people to work with who have made this dream become reality. Um, yeah. 
how do how, how do I feel? I, I I think there's still more work to be done. Um, but I get the most satisfaction when I see somebody that we would have taken, let's say, seven eight months ago. Even even the people from Ukraine who are the new wave coming to to the country now, who have you know moved from their social housing or supported housing into their own housing, who've got a job. And there are some now, actually, as we speak, people who are from Ukraine who we've helped, you know, got a house and, and a job and, and, and doing exactly the same kind of thing. I, I, and I want to get onto Ukraine in a bit later, just in the context sure. of how how the sort of refugee crisis is slightly politicised, yeah. um, particularly for the culture wars and how there's been sort of reactions to people um, on sort of both sides of the fence, a bit about kind of Ukraine, and I think if I just if I could just drill back a bit, really, for the you know for anybody, but also for people that being a refugee is beyond their understanding or certainly beyond their experience. As someone who's directly, in your own words, has lived experience of this, how difficult is it to enter a new country, or how difficult is it to move through countries to find essentially a new home, and what kind of impact does that have upon you psychologically? There are no words that I can use to explain what it feels like to have that experience. Honestly, it is mm. it is some of the it is it is the most daunting experience. I mean, imagine one day you've got this amazing job in your home country, you've got family, you've got friends, you're using your own home language to understand the culture, and you've got this familiar setting where you know, literally everything works for you. The next minute uh, this war crisis happened, which you have no control of, absolutely no control of, and then you go into this journey of leaving what you know behind, which could include losing some of your loved ones, which could include seeing some traumatic experiences of, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, anything from destruction to death. And then you come to a new country. The single biggest thing I found when I was, uh, I think at the time, 16, 17, coming to this country was, you know, that some people blame you for that whole process that you just went through, which is horrifying. You know, why are you here? Why are you coming? And you have you ex- you've experienced that directly? Oh, in, absolutely. In your, in your work, but personally as well, where there's been negativity, um, people essentially saying, well, we don't really want you here. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, to be honest, I don't want that to be the full picture of how I was welcomed into the country. The, you know, UK, I generally, I generally say it's one of the most amazing countries and how they work with new arrival communities. And uh, I'm sure at some stage we'll talk about the current government policies do not represent the majority of how people feel in this country about new Okay, that's interesting, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but some of the challenges which I really struggled included within the institutions that yeah. work. Some of it, it's what I call institutional timidity. They they really don't know how to work with this group. T- timidity. Correct. That was, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. They're a bit nervous, perhaps, a bit clumsy around trying to have this conversation, possibly. Correct. Correct. In, my, in my experience, I come from a community development sort of background before media, people tend often to fall into two camps with this. They're either relatively hostile or at least, if not hostile, quietly resentful, or a lot. I'm talking about a lot of, you know, white British people particularly, or they're kind of really worried about saying the wrong thing and sort of treading on eggshells a bit and sort of overcompensating. Yes. What's the right approach for somebody to be curious and to ask questions about I mean, your experience? It's what you just said, ask questions. Um, yeah. 
listen and 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 and, and, and try to understand the challenges. And, 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 and the most important thing also is the aspirations. These people are not just here to be on the dole or, 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 you know, to be just vulnerable human beings. Some will be, some will have some issues and challenges yeah. with its health and what have you. But as I said, a lot of them will be some people who've had highly paid jobs back home or have been running businesses and, and have skills that they can contribute to, to, to our society. So I think, uh, you know, assessing them and, and, and listening to them and, and asking them where are they now and where do they want to be and helping them their own journey, not what we design for them, is, is really critical. So asking questions, I mean, that, and that's also quite topical now, isn't it? I, I don't know if you've been following the story involving Lady Hussey, who's a member of staff at Buckingham mm-hmm. Palace, who's just resigned for <laughs> uh, asking, I, I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, Ngozi Fulani, who's a charity boss, and she yeah. asked her, where, where are you from? And then kind of went, no, 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 but where, where, are, you, where are you really from? Yeah. And then, no, no, but where are your people from? And it's caused a bit of a kind of hurrah and a stink in the media, and she subsequently resigned. Um that's polarised people a little bit. So you're obviously saying it's okay to ask questions. Is it the context and the way in which you ask questions or, or the intention behind the question? You're quite right. One would assume the intention behind uh, what the Royal Aid was asking wasn't good intention. Um, mm. So the best way to work with them is, is just as people. Um, I always say just treat them as 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 people who, you know, just like you and me. Um, they might yeah. have challenges. They might be here in a new country, but it doesn't mean they are any less off than, you know... So you usual. say it doesn't bother you, then, if somebody asks you where you're from? If, it, if, if somebody I says mean, where it, you're it depends from... In the context and, and of, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it depends on the, context, on the context of that question, doesn't it? So where yeah. are you from? I think, um, you know, uh, I, I, I see myself now as British. Um, I've been here yeah. uh, 20 years. I... Uh, to be honest, most of my life I've been in this country rather than Somalia. Yeah. Um, but I, I do get that exactly the same question where people say to me, where are you from? Uh, I would mm. say Bristol. And then where are you from? And I say, yeah. okay, Africa, Somalia. Yeah. Uh, and then usually when people mean negative, the second question is, when are you going back? Yeah. I, I get yeah, that. I, yeah, I think that, I think that, 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 is a, that is a thing and that is a leap that, or the fear that some people are kind of thinking that but I also do think that sometimes people are just naturally kind of curious and maybe a bit clumsy as we said and asking questions I think it's probably slightly confusing I think for some people because on the one hand we have a a kind of culture and a society that's celebrating diversity and multiculturalism and people kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. you know we're in the world cup at the moment and kind of you know people like my my wife's uh, from brazil and you know we're in the we're in the brazilian tops and brazil playing we're in the england tops and england are playing and awesome and, and awesome. you know and, and actually that's a celebration of culture so then when some people say oh no but where's your name from or or, or where you know maybe based on a name or, or skin color or how somebody looks or how they dress we also need to be a little bit careful that people feel that they can't be curious and ask questions as well. Is, is there a yeah. slight danger of that with this stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that timidity I, I said earlier of, of yeah. being afraid of making mistakes sometimes takes away the whole joy of getting to know new culture, new food, new human being with their, with their experiences. Uh, but yeah. I just want to, uh, before we uh, pass this subject, I just want to add that a lot of this is driven by what I call the sort of the... Uh, the Daily Mail wrong best assumption of people coming to 
as, as I think the word used by uh, some of the officials in the government, coming to invade our shores. Um, I just want to share with the listeners, um, there's about 100 million people displaced in the world, which is you know the most uh, we've ever had probably since uh, First, Second World War. Majority of these displaced people, Neil, never come to Europe, let alone UK. Yeah. They go usually to their neighboring countries. So in the case of Syria, they went to Turkey. In the case of uh, Ukraine, they went to Poland and what have you. Very yeah. few, very few, we're talking about less than one, two percent come to Europe. And of that percentage, then very few come to UK. So when people are saying, you know, people are coming over to take our resources, yeah. these yeah. actually crises are happening, but it's not happening in Europe. Why does that message not come out clear? Because you're right, you know, the data when people talk about, as you say, Syria, Turkey, and it, is, it is predominantly the neighbouring country to wherever there is a, you know, a, a civil war or a famine or a human rights crisis. Um, but that message doesn't seem to cut through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's the pictures you see on the, our screens and, and what appears on, you know, usually right-wing media, which shows a lot of people on boats coming to Europe and the UK. And it's that, it is that gives people perception that there's a lot of people coming to the country. But, but in reality, yeah. a lot of these people end up internally displaced in their home country or actually going into the neighboring countries. And there's been a lot of very tough policies to stop people coming and crossing the channel. And if you've actually seen or followed how that had impact on the last year, or actually the, the numbers of people crossing the channels and et cetera have doubled or tripled. So it, it, it is, in my view, we are sharing the wrong message and not implementing the right policies and it is not having the desired outcome. What do you say to someone that's listening that they they get their information from the media, you know, it could be broadcast media or right-wing newspapers like Daily Mail, Express, etc., that see these boats arriving and they see Calais and they see lots of people trying to cross and it's their experience and what they absorb in the media. The question that always comes is, well, why, why are they coming here? Why, why aren't they staying in France? What's the correct response to that? Well, I mean, what could I say when challenged in that situation? Both UK and, and France need to implement proper systems to make sure people are welcome where they're supposed to be welcome. And in UK, we need to assess people when they come in. And we're not putting enough investment in supporting those who are you know, refugees um, in France, those who have families here in the UK and they've been accepted as refugees helping them to uh, bring their other families wherever in the world they are. What's happening is d denying the rights of refugees. Uh, and I'm not saying France is completely denying that, but there is some element of denying that and, and passing or delegating the responsibility to, to UK. So I think, you know, it, it, there has to be a proper discussion yeah. between UK and France how this should work out. That's number one. Number two, people who come here uh, are actually even seeing more horrible experiences than what they had in that camp in France. So, you know, these people, they need to be uh, assessed quickly. Uh, the Home Office have admitted so many times that they don't assess people on time. The accommodation is that if I could use the warehouse in Kent is absolutely unacceptable. And we've seen recently that a tenant have died uh, or a, a refugee. Uh, um, I, I think we need to put proper systems and investment and instead of just making 
analysis of why people are coming here. The, the one thing I really want the listeners to understand is that migration, ladies and gents, is here to stay. So you spoke about earlier, Neil, conflict and, and what have you for people leaving their home country. There's another big issue that is on the horizon, and that's climate change. Would you say now, when did you say you came to the UK again? 1998. 1998. Would you say it's more of a welcoming country for refugees and immigrants now than it was then? In, in terms of the general public, I believe the the knowledge and understanding of refugees is much better now. Uh, in terms of policies, yeah. I think this is probably one of the most hostile policies I have ever seen, let alone comparing to 1998. Current policies are absolutely a nightmare uh, and, and far more worse than, than mm. when I came. Are you disappointed in Keir Starmer a bit in the Labour Party? They came out in October and said that, and this is a direct quote, there's not a great deal of difference between Labour and the Conservatives on immigration. Are you somebody who's been criticised on the left for that and by a lot of people from minority communities? Would you like to see him go further and send a stronger message? Absolutely. Why aren't they educating the public about uh, both the humanitarian and, and business case? For this? Do you think they're pandering to the red wall seats or a certain demographic? because of Brexit, because of losing all those seats there. They're more playing to winning the next general election and they know that migration is a big, big yeah. issue and topic. Um, they're sort of gerrymandering a little bit rather than actually saying what they think and believe. I just, I sense some frustration from some Yes, I mean, uh, I'm not a politician myself, but one thing I understand is that that institutional timidity I, I spoke of uh, when we started the interview is, is also very relevant here. We really need to uh, discuss what works and what works is having policies which are uh, useful and welcoming both migrants yeah. and refugees. And, and I think to some extent countries that have done that, uh, even though there's a lot of right-wing governments both in Europe and, and, and in America, but some countries, in some cases, Canada is putting in, you know, a lot of good practice here. So I, I think we need to educate the public about the realities of what works. One thing that Ashley Housing you talk about as a really key focus is migrant integration. To what extent do migrants have to adopt what is considered, I'm doing quote marks now, British values for you? I'm glad you said integration. And if, if I could sum up with one word, the work that we do, it's not housing, even though a lot of the work that we do is to give people housing when they come. We also give training to help them climatize, get skills and get into employment. Um, the, 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 the single most yeah. important thing I want people to understand is that integration is two ways, Neil. It's not people integrating into the UK yeah. values. That's one part of the integration. The other part of the integration, which is absolutely critical, which people forget is that the host community also needs to understand, uh, welcome and adapt to the people who are coming, their values, uh, their culture, their language, and celebrate that diversity, which you, you earlier said. I don't know whether you know, um, I think every year uh, in the fasting month of Ramadan, uh, in, in some Road in Bristol, we host this beginning meal where Bristol comes yeah. together. Have you been to one of those, Neil? The Grand Iftar, I've been going from, I, I grew up, well, I've lived where I lived and just right by St. Mark's Road. Yeah, I've been going from from the very beginning, which is a really good example of, and a response, yeah. isn't it, to the Manchester bombing that people got together and a really good example of, a, a, you know, a multi-faith, multicultural kind of event. 
um, which is great and fantastic. But if you go up the road to Church Road, not far away from that, you will see people sat in some of the pubs that don't agree with that type of stuff, that see that as being, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a taking over British values or a kind of taking over our streets. That that That's their kind of feeling. Those are the people that we need to win over, I think. That, to me, is always the challenge and always the issue. And I think Bristol's very good at a lot of this multicultural stuff when it's in a bubble. Yeah. Uh, when people are, are preaching to the converted or people are, are on the same page. You know, like I said, I used to work in community work, so I kind of know know a lot of people in those networks. However, it's not so great at having conversations with people outside of that. How can we convince or how can we have conversations with people that aren't comfortable with multiculturalism, that do see it as taking over British values? First of all, um, I would like to say that is not the majority of Bristol. I agree with you. There are, there are some people who, who feel like that. We, we, we've got a city that speaks 91 different languages. Certainly, it's come a really long way. We've got a mayor with uh, Jamaican descent, um, and yeah. that in itself it speaks volumes for the young people who are, you know, growing places like in Stapleton Road, um, that yeah. it is possible to, to be part of the fabric of this city and to be part of the people who decide and influence in, in you know, in our society. But you're quite right, there will always be people who... Uh, perceive that refugees are here to take, or migrants generally, or black and minority community are a burden to society. Yeah. Um, and I would disagree with that. And this is where the work that we do is very uh, critical in making the case. Because even though some of the people, let's say from Ukraine, Syria, are very new initially, and, and we help them with housing and, and training, very quickly, they actually deliver some of the most important things to the same people that you're talking about in Church Road. Let me give yeah, you real they do. But, but let me just let me jump in on that. But there's a fundamental difference between them and people from Somalia, Eritrea, Syria. They're white. And there's been what the interesting for me what's been what's been fascinating has been the response by a lot of people I know that are quite hesitant, um, you know, skeptical of migration and any refugee crisis, suddenly reaching out to people from Ukraine. There was something about perhaps them feeling more of a kinship with yeah. white Europeans. Is there some truth to that? I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, so, so I think the way the country have welcomed the Ukrainian community is, is absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything like it. The, the response from the general public has been absolutely amazing. So there's the question of why did that not happen for Afghanistan? Why did that not happen for Syria? Uh, and and, and I, I absolutely believe there's some truth in the fact that when you see somebody that looks like you, that is mm. very close to you in terms of geography, uh, that ha- is having some challenges and all of a sudden you think, okay, this problem is on my doorstep. I need to do something about it. And that can actually be, that doesn't necessarily need to be a racist position. It can be just, um, it can just be because, as you just said, people are, are familiar it's closer to where you are there's a shared culture is a little bit yeah. more that, that would be equally applied to someone from syria to turkey it doesn't have to be always framed in a in in that in a racist sense i guess and then that's um, what i've been actually saying neil um the the the, 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 the I, I i what i say to the people who say yeah, there could well be some truth in and and genuinely they, i i think there could be some truth in that racism position but yeah. The positive way to look at this is next time, and hopefully I'm not looking forward to any crisis happening in the world, yeah. but, but, but next time we have now a position where we can say this is, this is how we've welcomed 
to the yeah. event. It's a, I think you're right. It's a great. It could be could be used and seen as a great catalyst now to shift somebody from that position to go. Oh yeah, I suppose that's what it's like for someone from Afghanistan, or that's what it's like for someone from Syria. Because yeah. you've opened the door a little bit to and a bit of understanding and a bit of empathy to shift that along. So it could really be a real catalyst to try and win hearts and minds on this stuff. It actually is. Um, I, I go the, up and down the country working with many, many, many different counsellors mm. who are welcoming uh, Ukrainians who don't understand how to work with refugees. We work with them, um, give them um, you know, a lot of the tools that we've developed over the 15 years that we've been mm. doing this work. And I see a lot of optimism. Just want to jump in and tell you a bit about the Bristol Cable. We are a cooperative uh, membership newspaper and media organization we have a monthly newspaper but we do lots of articles online we do this show and we do videos on various different topics across the city and you can become a member we have thousands of members at the moment if you want to join all you need to do is jump onto the bristol cable website chuck some money in could be a pound could be five pound ten pound whatever you want to do and uh, you get a chance to come to agms come to meetings have an input into the type of stories and the type of stuff that we do. Do have a look. Back to the chat. Just want to just touch on the British values thing about integration, and it is something that's sort of banded a bit about the, from the right, and it's a culture war stuff and all of that. As a wider point, you said the host nation needs to meet the migrant halfway. Those tests that you have to do, you have to answer loads of questions for citizenship. Do they still do that? I'm really right. interested in that as to what kind of questions they are. And is that something that happens everywhere in the world? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is... Uh, I, I didn't finish earlier. I mean, so it's very important that people who are coming here understand, learn, uh, uh, and be part of that British values. Certainly the work that we do include a lot of what we call citizenship learning, but uh, mm-hmm. it include orientation, understanding UK, how to go about UK. And up to some extent, if you don't understand, you never will ever be fully integrated. And what we would have is communities within communities. Do we have that a bit sort of like particular areas with, I don't know, the Muslim community or the, in Birmingham? We've seen communal issues between people from the Indian Hindu community and Indian Muslim community there, yeah. uh, uh, British Pakistanis as well. There's been, it's so this, uh, there's this sort of sense that there is in some cities in the UK uh, a, a kind of ghettoization where people from different faiths or different cultures don't go. Um, is that a danger, I guess? Absolutely. And, and Bristol, I think Bristol is that. I think Bristol is a sort of example of a sort of shining light probably amongst this stuff, you know, largely, I would say. But in other cities, it, there there can be some tension and some issues with this stuff. Well, I, I, I think up to some extent, I would um, uh, humbly disagree that Bristol's not one of them. I think we have many, you know, stories have been written about Bristol calling uh, the city of two tales. Um, I, I, I think. Yeah, true. <laughs> Running me trust and all that. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, up to, so, so the the, the this is really uh, important subject we're discussing here. We have yeah. uh, communities within communities, which you know, when people are not totally integrated and in ghetto areas and what have you, uh, British values and citizenship is part of the answer. But I think we, we would miss if we wouldn't talk about that. There's a bigger and wider community issues of why this community is not fully integrated. And a lot of it comes back to poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of it comes back to 
social housing being built in certain areas of, let's say, even Bristol, of which then education becomes poor and the area becomes poor and crime and, and, and what have you. I'm not saying the government or the system have... In, in fact, I am saying the system that's been designed is, in a way, encouraging communities within communities. And the answer lies with the integration we spoke about earlier. There's a lot of honest on this community. For example, Eastern to integrate into the values of Clifton, some of the most amazing food, music, and what have you, from Eastern Stapleton Road, is some of the things that when I take to equivalent of Clifton or, or organizations or people that they really find absolutely amazing. So mm. it, it, it goes back to the idea that integration is not one way, that it's really critical that even though communities are expected to learn the British values and what have you, we also need to give them opportunities. Mm. And that's the important bit here, opportunities of learning, skills, employment, self-agency, so that these people can... Uh, navigate themselves, I guess, navigate. in, in the new, new world. Yeah. So it's getting a balance then, because some people would push back at the whole concept of British values, would see that as a kind of right-wing load of nonsense and just say it's ridiculous. And other people would say that, well, actually, those values are being morphed and being eroded when the truth, like everything, probably lies in the middle, that any cross-cultural phenomenon, where, wherever it is in the world, is a mutual exchange. Yeah, I mean, how would you understand the host community if you don't respect the British values? How, yeah. you know, how one would leave and adapt in some cases? Well, so... what would they be? I'm sorry, I don't want to labour this, but obviously there's been a lot of stuff in the, the education, you know, a lot of revisionists looking at, particularly around colonialism, and obviously Somalia, you know, being colonised by the Europeans, English, Dutch and Italians, and mm -hmm. having that role as well that you would know personally about. But, but, but also lots of people are re-examining the role that British people had and would actually turn it on its head and say, what British values are there? Raping and pillaging and taking over countries and extorting money and natural wealth from third world countries across the globe. And other people would say, well, hang on a minute, you know, we were founded on tolerance, understanding, da, 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 and you're taking that away. It's very much polarised, this attitude towards what British values are, I think. You're quite right. When you talk about British values, people take it back to the empire, the um, slavery, especially here in Bristol. There's a lot of history that's very negative um, that uh, is against whatever values you want to talk about. Mm. But why is that history exists at local level? Uh, at, at one family level from Syria mm. to understand and to operate in, in some of the places where you are settled, one must really learn about the values and the culture of the people that you are uh, working, living. Um, so I, I think there has to be some uh, understanding of the history of yeah. where things have gone wrong and what we need to do, especially uh, we talk about this in the Black History Month about the things that United Kingdom have done wrong in the past, in our view. And it's different from somebody who's from the Caribbean to somebody who's from Africa, like myself. For sure. Some people yeah. from Ukraine and some people from... I mean, not all refugees are the same, by the way. So so we all yeah. have different experiences of this. I want to jump in a little bit to about Bristol and then move on to just sure. a couple of housing issues. But firstly, just around yourself. You've quite recently been appointed a ambassador for the city alongside the watersheds, Claire Reddington and solicitor and owner of Lakota, Marty Burgess. What does that role entail for you? And how did you get appointed to do that? There's a group of people that are appointed every year from recommendations of different people 
uh, and recommended to the mayor to um, appoint an ambassador for uh, for our amazing city of Bristol. It actually entails working with the mayor, working with the council, and you know helping export our knowledge. And, and especially in the case of uh, the work that we do, we do a lot of work with uh, European countries and, mm-hmm. and in some cases even farther afield about the subject that we've been discussing today, understanding what it feels like, integration, yeah. what works, what doesn't work, what we've learned in terms of getting people into employment, self-employment. We have a lot of experience. Tomorrow, I believe, Neil, there's a big conference with UNHCR and Global Mayors. So I, I will be actually joining a big online event, speaking with Marvin and and, and I think the mayor from Kambala. Um, Uganda, yeah? Uganda, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the political consensus or some of the criticism in, in Bristol is that some of the networks, the power networks, are a bit cosy, that decisions are kind of made or people are appointed by their personal relationships with the mayor rather than an objective criteria. How would you respond to that? There is independent board, which includes all sorts of people who have appointed or decide who becomes ambassador. Um, I have been around um, and working over 14 years. And to be honest, I, I, I hardly, you know, I had my challenges uh, within the system, including Bristol City Council. The, it, it goes back to that, you know, just because might be the mayor is black and so and so might might be black, that, mm. but it's not true. I absolutely rate and respect what Marvin have done for this city um, yeah. and, and where he came from. Just on that point, which I guess is a levy of nepotism, would you say then that people are making an assumption that that's the case? Because there are clearly more people of colour around the internal leadership team of the city. And are people making an assumption to say, well, hang on, well, as you just said, really, the mayor is black, therefore this must be some kind of golden handshake, some kind of patting on the back of, of mates, when actually that says perhaps a bit more about their perception of this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Take it back to where we started from today. You know, my, yeah. my story started from symbols. I haven't had an easy journey to get to where I am today. 14 sure. years of, you know, starting from one house, not not even being given a, you know, and and and, and getting this organization this far. It wasn't because Marvin was a mayor. Um, and, and, and and the work that... And that's quite patronising, quite patronising to presume it actually is. Would you get my point? Is that not a sort of, you know, white privilege mentality to think that what well, you would only get that position because, you know, um, because of that anyway? It, it's, it's, it's the old, actually, horrible racism view of which I, I think we should celebrate what we've achieved as a city. And yeah. it, I'm just interested to know, because you're obviously in the, you know, you're, like you said, you're talking in the global mayor thing, you're in the uh, sort of inner sanctums of... Of, of power now, which you probably weren't before, as you said, you know, having to come from St. Paul's from the outside into that, is that there are lots of accusations of favours for mates and that kind of thing. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But a lot of people get annoyed now at criticism of that because, like yourself, there are a lot of people that have come through in Bristol that didn't really get access to power or access to a voice. And now they have that, they're being criticised for it or somehow they don't deserve to be there or somehow they've got favour. I just think or it's somehow, quite interesting. Or somehow we believe maybe they don't belong here. I mean, we, Yes, we, exactly, exactly. This is really yeah. annoying. If you look at the, I don't know whether you've been to the council, the list of mayors before Marvin, this man is the first black elected mayor 
in Europe, I believe. The fact that there is change he's absolutely not afraid to make to promote inclusion, to promote diversity, to promote all different sorts of people from Bristol are represented in corridors of power. That's not what's been uh, expected. That's, you know, it's yeah. a shaking, uh, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the usual, I'll say it as it is, over 40, 50 yeah. white male usually, who, yeah. who, who think it is their right to govern. So you can uh, see, you can, and it's quite clear, anybody who's been around, you know, I've been in, uh, involved in community stuff and media, it's very clear that there is a slight change in demographic and makeup. They often tend to be black and ethnic minority voices that are supportive of the mayor in general. There are some people like Lawrence Hu or Clear Lake or Jen Reed that are all black, but have a different political perspective than the mayor that aren't invited in. Do you know what I will say to that? Go on. This man yeah. has been... I mean, I, to be honest, I'm not a Labour, even though I have worked with Marvin. I, I just want to share the people here that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not associated with in any way with, with the mayor. He's been elected twice and have won, yeah. in one case, line slide or, or huge numbers. Was it yeah. only black people that voted for him? It, it, it's not the case. Um, I suppose the one thing that is new and unique in the last two uh, elections of which Marvin have been successful is that we have people who are, for example, refugees who are actually have now access to the mayor's office and corridors of power. So yeah. it, I, I think that creates a lot of anxiety. And in my mind, people really need to get used to that because Bristol represents everyone, not yeah. only certain groups of people. You've said something specific about Marvin and and does he only accept his friends in his decision-making company. I mean, those questions you really need to ask him directly or the people that work with him. But what I do know is is that the inclusion that we see in the cabinet, the inclusion that we see... And, and do you know Bristol City Council as a workforce is horribly white? It doesn't yeah. represent the percentages of our community that are, you know, black and thing, minority. So, so that's kind of the way to point me. So is it had to have been accelerated? So people talk about the old school tie, don't they? The white Absolutely. establishment. And Bristol's very much of that. Probably Marvin's perspective on it is that, well, what am I supposed to do? Wait for 100 years until something becomes equal? And well, yes, I am going to elevate people. I am going to push people that I feel make a contribution. And, and, and a lot of them may well be black and ethnic minority. Where anyone would do it, wouldn't they? And anybody would bring in people that they know and they trust. I just think, you know, this is all about having opened all these conversations about sure. things and it's in the ether that people say in the city. And I, I do think there's, there's validity to both sides of those arguments. But I also very much take how it must be frustrating or insulting for somebody in a position like you that struggled and built a charity up from scratch in St. Paul's to then be elevated to a position and people suddenly just make an assumption that you only got there because of uh, because you're mates with the mayor or because you're black like the mayor. And I, and I can totally understand how that would be frustrating. Yeah. What are the big issues for housing in Bristol and beyond? To be honest, Bristol is one of the most difficult places to get a affordable rent. Um, and, and people are genuinely struggling. People of all walks, and um, you know, it, it, it is really difficult. And one of the things that we do is to help people get support to finding accommodation, especially in the early days where they have a lot of crisis. Um, and, and we talk about now people who are new to the country, the client group that we work with. But but the challenge we have now is when we help them to move on, and I mean they secure employment. Unless the employment is in medium salary, it will be very difficult for them to rent privately and move from our supported housing. So we are consistently 
appealing to the people and appealing now to the audience to whoever have a, a second home to consider leasing their properties to us and we would definitely do give commercial rents but also have huge impact on the people that we serve. Housing is a is a major issue. It's a, it's a huge issue, and it's a huge issue in Bristol, isn't it? And I think that it's obviously a national issue as well. And, and, but it's also the quality of the housing, isn't it? We've seen examples, Rochester Housing Association, a, a death of a, a two-year-old, uh, Ewab Ishab, um, to do with prolonged exposure to mould. There are issues around slum landlords in Bristol. We've had issues around cladding and fires in some of the blocks in Lawrence Hill. Quality of housing is as important as housing people itself. What type of measures can we put in place to ensure that people are safe in their own homes? This is a really very important subject and it's totally unacceptable in what happened to that two-year-old. ACH is a registered social landlord. We are regulated by the government. We face inspections by the council. Yet, you know, in some cases it's not enough and there are some of these big housing associations and actually, in some mm. cases, the private sector who are providing a really poor accommodation. For the yeah. client that we work with, Neil, people who don't understand how to complain, people who don't understand how to challenge some of the poor housing that they are getting, it's even yeah. bigger problem because they feel just grateful to have just a house. And that gets exploited, doesn't it? I think and that, that, gets exploited. That, that lack of knowledge or understanding or confidence to challenge gets exploited by landlords. Yeah, and this or is where Sari, uh, organizations like Sari really stand in a lot to help. But but the reality is, um, I really believe um, the government really did come down hard, as always, you know, not proactively, but reactively. In the case in uh, uh, the two-year-old, we really must come down hard. And because accommodation is very expensive, what some landlords are offering a little bit cheaper, it's just not acceptable. And we have to put systems in place, both council and, and, and nationally the government, to come down hard on those rogue landlords. How are we going to pay for the housing crisis? There's a whole debate in there in the city at the moment about how much private external housing organisations are coming to the city, how much council houses we should have, how much stuff funded by local authority or funded by national government. It's a big, big question, uh, Phil, I don't know, but how are we going to pay for this housing crisis that we see? Well, first of all, the first step we need to take is to build more social housing by uh, housing associations who have got access to different monies, both private and government money, and, and the council. You know, 10 years ago, if you look at the number of houses we've been building in Bristol a year, it's just not acceptable. We gave up. We stopped building social housing. And, and now I, I think there's, a, there's a, myself and, and, and my colleagues in, in the sector, there, there's a lot of well determination. And, you know, I, I think the challenge is not just lack of money, you know, space is issue, land is a is, is major issue. But I believe if we all come together, um, both the housing associations and, and, and the local government and, and the public, and the aim is to increase the number of social housing properties, I think there's definitely a way. The reason why Bristol has a uh, shortage of housing is how much houses have we been building? In some cases, it's just 20. Would you believe it? 20 properties per year for a rich city like Bristol. That's not acceptable. Our yeah. leaders have let us down nationally and locally for this city. Um, and I think up to some extent, I'm not just relating to the current administration, but up to some extent, the leadership in the existing social, you know, social landlords are coming together now to build more properties. And you're quite right. There's a lot of money coming from different places for the private sector. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Is, is that okay? Uh, it depends. Um, 
you know, there's, there's a lot of it is for students, a lot of it is for reach, and, and, and you wonder where's the social housing. So, And that's the kind of thing a bit. There's, it's often like, oh, you know, we're building this many houses. And, you know, the mayor is guilty of doing this. We'll, and it'll be a big sort of social media thing about it. But, uh, you know, how many houses are those who actually go into the vulnerable or flats? An awful lot of student flats being built in Bristol, from what I can see. And clearly there is housing happening, but also there is an awful lot of student houses. Uh, and, you know, I'm an ex-student myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not digging out students. But do we need so much student accommodation in, I mean, in it, Bristol? There has to be balance. We, we need we need social housing. We need affordable rents. It's not enough just to uh, have this expensive or student accommodation. It goes back to the planning permission given and everything else. And I think there's a lot of pushback currently. Um, and it's not so easy to... Yeah. Just come and build. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of uh, pushback from the council, especially the planning permission, to to That's make good. sure yeah. that the right suitable housing is done um, in our city. My final question to you really, is it important for you to talk to people that maybe don't agree with your stance, that maybe even be hostile to have open dialogue to try and persuade them, as you said earlier, to see the value that migrants, the value that refugees socially, economically bring to this country? Absolutely. I I always welcome people who have different views and, 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 and no question is wrong question as such. I think I'm we're always happy to listen and learn. Um, we've got a campaign called Rethinking Refugee, which says refugees should just be seen as people. You know, yeah. they should be seen as assets to any city who can help make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and that can only happen by not a one-way conversation, but a two-way conversation where people tell you why they disagree. Thank you, Fuad. We're uh, we're going to wrap it up now without a Christmas pun on that. Um, We are coming up to Christmas. Uh, I can see on your website there is a number of things that you can do to help people from refugee and migrant backgrounds. Thank you ever so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much, mate. Many thanks to this week's guest, Fuad Mohammed from Ashley Community Housing. And we'll be back soon with a brand new guest and a fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>